In the Trauma-Informed Education podcast, you can get great ideas and practical advice for educators. You can get more invaluable insights and free resources by subscribing to our Trauma-Informed PBS monthly newsletter. Visit www.tipbs.com and register your email address. That's tipbs.com. I'm Dr. Kay Eyre. Relationships change the brain. The good news from the science and research on brain development is that while our earliest interpersonal experiences may have created unhelpful patterns, new patterns are formed as children develop into adults. With the right support, students can liberate themselves from those old patterns through new neural connections. Through training the mind, even young children can be helped to become more calm, especially those who suffer from the emotional turmoil of trauma. So what are these skills and how do we teach them? Today we speak with Bonnie Badenock. Bonnie is a master therapist, supervisor, teacher and author who has spent the last 15 years integrating the discoveries of neuroscience into her practice. Her work as a therapist has focused on helping trauma survivors and those with significant attachment wounds to reshape their neural landscape to support a life of meaning and resilience. Her conviction that wisdom about the relational brain can transform human experience for people at every age led to the publication of Being Brainwise, a practical guide to interpersonal neurobiology. In 2017, she published her most important book entitled The Heart of Trauma, Healing the Embodied Brain in the Context of Relationships. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govin Krishnamurthy, and I'm here as always with Dr. K. A. Hi, Kay. Hi, Govin. How are you? Good. I'm very Let's excited. Go We've got Bonnie here with us. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm excited myself. We are excited as well. Um, are we, so we might just get right into it. Bonnie, this is a podcast for educators and other people working in the area. We're curious about where you perhaps went to school, primary school, elementary school and high school and how it maybe shaped you, the person you are and the work you do. Yeah, it's a great question because I think ordinarily we don't think all the way back, you know, to what was that like? And I, I go back to, to a primary school. I grew up in Southern California in the United States, and um, we had a rather small community at that time, so our school was rather small. And my first four years were pretty unremarkable. Um, I was ill, and so I missed kindergarten, but first through fourth. But then in fifth grade, I had a really wonderful teacher. And I think what she gave me more than anything was in addition to really wanting us to excel academically, she cared about each person individually in the class. And it just kind of felt like her warmth was wrapped around us for the whole year. And that wholeness of that relationship has really stayed with me. And I've spent a lot of my time prior to becoming a therapist being a college professor 
and I always just feel like she's perched on my shoulder, <laughs> helping me be the best teacher I can be and really caring about the whole person and not just you know, their academic success and things like that. So that's what stands out from that, that experience. Like for most kids, middle school was awful, and I don't remember very much except it being <laughs> awkward and difficult, and that age time is just so challenging, you know. But then I got into high school, and once again, I had some people that really, some teachers that really made a difference, and always about that wholeness that I felt like I mattered as a whole person. Um, I was very interested in science then, and I went off to college as a science major, as a result of, of science and math being really strong for me. And then I did what many women do. I met this amazing professor of comparative literature and promptly changed my major. <laughs> so, so I, but I carried that love of science in the background all along. And I think that when um, neuro, the neuroscience started, relational neuroscience started to really become a thing that we could get a hold of, I think it really stirred up those parts of me that had always loved science. So nothing is useless. I think everything is useful that we, all of our experiences. So I went off to college and uh, studied comparative literature. Um, I didn't want to read all the minor English poets, so I didn't want to be an English major. <laughs> and got to study literature from all around the world. And again, I had, I went to a, a, a private school that was on the smaller side. And so we were taught not by TAs, but by professors. And boy, they taught me how to think. I had this one professor that never answered our question with anything but another question. And I think I probably more from him in the five or six classes I had in my bachelor's and master's than I have with anybody, because he really helped our minds to become more and more deeply curious and more broadly curious, especially in an area like literature where you don't pin much down, you know, where you're actually working with what are the ideas and the themes and what are these people about in this play or this poem and so I feel like that was a very rich experience and uh, so this is get this answer gets long because I as a child my only safe place was school so I kept going back and getting more degrees because I think I felt so safe mm. on a campus. So the next thing I did was almost get a doctorate in comparative literature, but in the meantime, I'd become very involved in a yoga center. And right before I got to writing the dissertation, I had everything but the dissertation, I switched and I wound up getting a doctorate in comparative religion with an emphasis in mysticism. And I feel like that has very much informed how I see the world and how I'm able to hold people, I think, in some way in the depth of their curiosity about not only their inner world, but about their spiritual lives and all of that. So that, that piece has been really, really important. It wasn't until I was 46 that I went back to school yet again to get my degree in marriage and family therapy and then became a therapist at that point. And I did that because I finally, I had a really abusive childhood. And in my mid-40s, I finally got really good therapy. And I thought, oh, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I want to do this for others because it's been done for me and changed my life entirely. <laughs> and so um, that's what I did. And then my very first supervisor was a wonderful man and had just had a huge influence on me because of his kindness and his depth of understanding 
that everybody's doing the best that they can do and that, that if we can understand deeply enough what's going on inside of them and what their relational support is in the outside world, that we can really help deep change happen with really severe trauma. So I was very fortunate to have a supervisor like that one-on-one -on -one that whole first year of practice, and he really shaped me. Mm. Then I met Dan Siegel in 2000. Three and that really shaped me again. So it's all this cumulative addition of these wonderful people who've come into my life and and you know really helped me deepen not only understanding but presence, wanting you know wanting to be more and more present for people. Mm -hmm. so I know that was a long answer, but <laughs> no, that was always, great. Yeah, it's always fascinating, isn't it? And yeah, yeah just yeah, listening to you talk, how it all you know how childhood sets us up doesn't it for it everything really mm. yes yes both the things that hurt us and the people mm. who, who save us along the way both yeah. yes wow yeah. thank you bonnie uh, you've got such an interesting body of work but i wanted to start with what you were saying about the relational neuroscience and what do you think we're learning about how our brains develop and what do you think that tells us about what children need and what we all need um, growing up. Yes. Well, I think in a single sentence, I would say what we're learning is, is that relationship is everything, that we're shaping one another's brains all the time, and that this is particularly important when babies are very small and up through the, the time when the brain is open to differentiation and to being shaped at a really core level. But what happens to us early on becomes a perceptual foundation. It becomes the way that we see the world. So if things are really scary between us and the people who are supposed to be caring for us and maybe doing the very best that they can do, but it's still scary, then it shades us always to look for things to be more frightening mm. because that's what, we, that's what got implanted at the earliest. If it's warm and wonderful and we feel reflected and we feel received and we feel known, then that provides a solid foundation and gives us more resilience when the struggles and sufferings of life come along as they do for everybody. So I think we're learning that it's true very early and then all through our lives that we need others to be with us, that we are, Stephen Porges, the polyvagal man, polyvagal theory is one of my favorite people. And he says, connection is a biological imperative. And that that is true from before we're born and maybe even after we're gone, but at least in, you know, until, we're, until we pass away that we are dependent on relationships for how our brains are being shaped all the time. So that to me is the single most important thing for us to remember is how influential our inner state is for everybody else around us all the time. I can't hear you, Govind. You're on mute. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think it was a quote in one of your books that you talk about um, how children need to be in environments that are um, rich and thick in um, healing relationships, I think. And I, that's always stayed with me in terms of thinking about not just the presence of people, but the quality of the relationships they're in as well. Yes, definitely the quality. I, one of the things that I think is sometimes hard for the people I see is they'll come in feeling that they were loved in their family, but they soon discover that even though they were loved, their parents didn't really see them. 
they couldn't reflect back to them who they were and so they felt alone anyway and very sad because there was nobody present so love isn't the only thing love's a very important thing but love does not necessarily mean that a parent is going to be someone who can in a in a really deep way shape us for security ongoing hmm. Yeah. Could you talk to that a bit more, Bonnie? You've written a lot about um, therapists and people in the human services being brain-wise, um, kind of using a lot of what we learn about the brain and relationships to shape and provide that sense of security. Uh, can you tell us about what that involves and what that might look like? Yeah, I think uh, that we're what we're discovering, you know, I'll talk about a couple of people as we go along, Steve Porges being one of them because he's all about safety and connection. And another person who's really shaped my way of thinking is a man named Ian McGilchrist, who wrote a book about the two hemispheres of the brain and how they each see the world differently. And so in being pretty deeply with his work now for a number of years, what I've come to realize is how much my, my work as a therapist of being present to others truly present to them depends on me having a deep understanding of what's going on inside of them. So as learning this, this relational neuroscience pretty deeply, certainly not all of it, nobody can do that, but certain key themes and really beginning to embody them so that I have a sense of security and safety in the room myself and have a sense of where they are, that to me is the brain-wise part, then I'm free to use more of these right hemisphere resources to be present in the moment when I don't know what's going to emerge next. We can't know what's going to happen next in any relationship. And that's kind of tentative potentially anxiety producing ground but if I'm grounded in this knowledge base that's coming to us now it keeps me solid and strong so yeah. that I'm able then to be with whatever might come next you know whether that person might suddenly become angry or full of grief or mm -hmm. dysregulated in some way this other this other brain wise knowledge will support me in knowing what's going on so that I can really stay present and not go into sympathetic activation myself. Mm, yeah. You've written a lot about um, the importance of mindfulness, Bonnie, and something that I know Kay and um, something we talk about through the program as well is this idea that for, for teachers being mindful, it actually enables them to attend to not just one child, actually be more attentive to, in fact, the whole class, um, that it broadens your kind of um, ability to do that. Um, it, it, is that kind of an idea that you were referring to in terms of being sensitive and present with kind of uh, a child or another person? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I believe that as we're more mindful of our own mental health and our, our care, you know, give good care to the parts of us that have been hurt. And by good care, I mean, have others helping us, not trying to mm -hmm. do it by ourselves, but mm -hmm. getting good care as well. That as we do that, we're able to be more mindful to our own inner world. But the other part that's so important is interpersonal mindfulness, where I can be more mindful of each child. Mm. And I can be more mindful of the room as a whole. And when, when they feel that, when they sense that I, if I'm really attuned to a group, because I work a lot with groups now teaching, they can sense that I'm attuned. It's very settling. It creates a kind of emotional, psychological safety. And that allows the child in a classroom, in any setting, or an adult, to be able to kind of blossom into wherever they might be able to go because they feel safe. They mm -hmm. feel 
someone is actually with them. But boy, it sure means we have to attend to our own inner world on a regular basis because things are happening all the time that require attention, not to mention what also happened for us when we were young, you know. So mm. it's kind of a dual path of, of that for ourselves, but also very much, very much offering that kind of mindfulness, that mm. kind of passionate sensing of the, of the value of each of the children in the room, regardless of their behavior in the moment. But this is a very valuable child. It sounds like it's both a simple and quite a complex thing, I think, at the same time, attending to yourself and kind of the needs of the other kids. And I imagine that would get, you know, better the more you kind of know the child, the more present you can be. Um, speaking of mindfulness, I've got a three-year-old, and I think there's uh, no one's more mindful about their players than when a child's playing. <laughs> 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 um, I wondered if you could... <laughs> I said full involvement, right? Just that's right. That's right. That's a nice word for it, actually. Um, and I, I wondered if you could speak to that body in this idea of what role play plays in the lives of children, all our lives, really, and what its deprivation actually does. Yes, I, there's been some research, and I can't cite who the people are, but if you take play away from kids in in uh, in in grade school and elementary school, you can probably increase the number of kids that look like they have ADHD by about 50% in about two weeks. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kids need to move. They need to play. They need to relate to other kids. They also need to work the energy out of their bodies. You know, they need to do this. Uh, Jak Pongsep, who's the effective neuroscience guy, has said that if we started each day with recess, the kids would do so much better when they came into the classroom. So part of it is a physiological need to move. And as adults, there's a physiological need to banter and play with each other also, you know, to have that back and forth. And it only arises in its fullest when we feel safe. So that's important. But there's another piece about play with kids. You know, the rough and tumble kind of play that kids want to do. They get to watch that fine edge between now we're playing and now somebody's getting hurt and we're afraid. And they get to see that on the other child's face as they go back and forth and they get to feel it in their own body as they move from play into fear because usually because somebody gets a little too rough or says something that's that hurts somebody. And that edge is right where a lot of preventing bullying can happen. Because if a child can read that in another child's face, they'll also have the echo of it in their own body. And they're a lot less apt to continue down the road of bullying. Mm. When we don't get that, when kids are immersed in screens all day, or they're, or in, or they're just kind of captured in a schoolroom all day, and they don't have the opportunity to have these kinds of interactions with others, they can't ever learn to read those faces. Mm -hmm. So important because when I if I see pain on your face, Govind, the first thing that happens is that pain response goes into me and I feel it myself and it makes me want to stop and be with you. Mm -hmm. If I can't see that, I'll just go blithely on mm -hmm. as though nothing has happened. So there have been some, I think this study was in Britain about teaching kids about reading faces and mm -hmm. seeing that bullying went down a whole lot because mm -hmm. they because of that that inner resonance and response we have with people. So play is vital at a social level. It's vital at an energetic level. Um, and beside that, kids should have joy. And what's more joyful than just, you know, <laughs> running around being silly. You know, if you, have to, if you have to do something that looks like play but is really work all the time, 
it, it doesn't give us that, that sense of free joy and exploration that we also need to develop. Hmm. So it's just so important that we realize this and not say, oh, the kids are just playing. It's valueless. It's quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, there's something that gets discussed quite a lot in the education sphere is this idea of explicit learning, which is being very explicit about how you teach. And I think something we talk about, this idea of implicit learning. And I was thinking about, you know, how do you teach children to be sensitive to these things is is and it's pro- probably by being sensitive yourself yeah. to the child um and which could be a really difficult thing because at times a lot of uh, challenging children don't necessarily give off you know ver- verbal non-verbal cues about exactly how they're feeling and that can be a difficult thing to read did you have some thoughts about that bonnie about how you build that kind of attunement and sensitivity with these children well, again, I, I've always wished for our teachers here in the States that they had more of a background in understanding neuroscience, especially around attachment, around implicit memory, and how that gets activated in people so that they begin to kind of you know, act out. What looks like acting out is really a response to something that's happening inside of them, that they understood more about polyvagal theory and the autonomic nervous system and how when children get overly excited and start to do things that it's not a willful choice most of the time maybe all the time it's it's an automatic activation based on fear so that's where i would start is i wish teachers knew more about this because i think as as me and my interns have known more about this what happens is our compassion broadens and our window of tolerance, you know, our ability to stand strong emotions really gets bigger. And so then we can receive people, even when they're being big, or even, and, and also notice kids that have disappeared into a withdrawn state, you know, to be aware of that whole range of where kids can get lost. Because in a way, the withdrawn kids often get more lost than the acting out kids do. They yep. just get we get just disappeared. Mm. And so if we had this knowledge then and this compassion expands, we can begin with instead of judgment, curiosity to go toward the child, wondering, I'm wondering what's happening inside of you. Mm. That this that this is what we're seeing on the outside, that these behaviors are happening, that the that it doesn't begin with a behavior, it begins with an inner place. Mm. And so if a, if a teacher can hold on to that, I think then they can approach a child without the sense of judgment or punishment or the need to just grab and take control. I don't mean physically grab it. I mean grab the situation and get control. But instead, the child will feel the warmth and curiosity of, I wonder what's troubling you. Mm-hmm. That makes a huge difference for kids mm-hmm. if they're not approached as the, the bad kid in the room. It's uh, mm-hmm. There's been, again, research that shows that the kid that was out of the classroom sitting on the bench in first grade is the same kid sitting on the bench in sixth grade. Mm. That's what's been reflected to them. You are the troublemaker in this classroom. Mm. And so they come in, even if the previous teacher hasn't already told the teacher, even without that, they know who they are because of the reflection, and they continue to do that, and then they, they keep getting the same response. It really deepens in an implicit way. Mm-hmm. keeps them tied to the behaviors that are problematic for everybody, but really most for themselves. Mm-hmm. Bonnie, that just reminded me of um, a student that I dealt with, and it was, I guess, a moment for me where I, as a teacher, deeply thought about that when she looked at me and she said, but Miss Error, I've forgotten how not to be naughty. Yes. 
I don't know what to do. That must have just touched your heart. It was. I, I, I remember having to turn away from her purely because I, I was all teary and I thought, oh, no. You know, she, she was basically pleading to me saying, I want to be good, but I'm in year seven. So she was 12 years old and she didn't know how. And she, yeah, she literally said to me, I don't know how not to be naughty anymore. Right. And, yeah, and I think... Yeah, yeah, all of that sort of comes together when you hear a little person mm. say and that to you. Yeah, and, and it makes so much sense. If what we get reflected to us all the time is you're the bad kid, mm. then that's all we know about who we are. And it's said out loud. And you know, you naughty it. child, get yourself over here or how can you be so naughty? It's like you're doing this to me, you know, type of, mm. oh, dear. Mm. So it's a matter of being able to look beyond the behavior to the curiosity yes. of what's going on because since attachment and connection is our main job as a human being at every age, starting from the very beginning, we can know that the actual natural healthy impulse of a child is going to be to join in harmony. And if mm. they're not, something's happening mm. inside mm. them that isn't letting them follow their natural path. Mm. And again, this is why I think the neuroscience knowledge is so helpful because if we know that and we apply it to ourselves and all the ways we've been taught told we were naughty or judged or whatever if we can first apply it here and then apply it with kids it changes everything mm. that child the, the, the child will feel the different intent of the person who comes with curiosity about what's going on inside than the one who comes with the determination to make the behavior stop the child will feel it before the person ever opens their mouth. It will be reflected all over them. And person to person, there's a resonance about that. Mm. Bonnie, I think one of the powerful things I'm taking away from one, what you're saying, and which is something we hear quite a lot, is what neuroscience is teaching us more than ever is the importance of the adults to stay regulated and thoughtful and and kind. <laughs> and what a powerful impact that has on the children themselves. Um, but not only does it have an impact on children, but it actually affects how this what the school climate is like and what the work environment is like within a school and how the adults treat each other as well what do you what do you think we're learning about how neuroscience impacts groups of people Bonnie, and stress sorry i think what you're saying is really true if especially in schools where i've seen where the person at the top has really taken to this kind of way of thinking and all of that, it's really powerful because then it begins to, to spread down through the schools. At least that seems to be what happens here. And if we don't get that person who's influential over hiring, over training, over you know everything else that happens and kind of setting the vision and the standards, it's much harder to get to that place because you're fighting a larger system. But I think your question is about how, you know, how do groups affect each other? So let's say a teacher feels really stressed out for the reason that she can't possibly, and this is, I, I can only draw on U.S. examples, but I'm guessing it's not that different in most places. She has a curriculum that she has to meet, right? Yes, that there's yep. a curriculum that yep. has to be taught. There have to be certain outcomes of that curriculum. She's got some kids in the class that are pretty stirred up for whatever reason. And so she comes in already anxious. 
So when that anxiety is there, it's radiating out from the tone of voice. It radiates out from her not being able to really listen to the kids. These are all things that happen with the autonomic nervous system. There's tension around the eyes that registers with everybody who sees them. The forehead begins to be more tense and not as mobile, and there's tension in the muscles. So between all of these kinds of things, with the first glimpse the kids get of her and the first words they hear, they are going to be pulled towards sympathetic arousal because she's, she's radiating something scary here. That's wow. her whole being is radiating that right as she says the first word. It doesn't matter what she says. That's wow. radiated. So now the classroom begins to feel, and I'm guessing there are no classrooms where somebody isn't anxious already coming to the classroom, you know. So now that, that person and the teacher are kind of holding it, and, the, and, the, and it may just radiate out through the whole room, and everybody is sympathetically aroused. Everybody's a little afraid, on edge. When that happens, kids will act out. Some kids will vanish. But nobody will be learning very well. We don't learn new things in sympathetic arousal very well at all because that's not our job. Our job is to keep ourselves safe. We don't feel safe. Safety is what matters. And learning, you know, my times tables is not going to keep me safe. So it just goes by and kids can't learn. So it is very important not to expect ourselves to be in that more balanced state all the time because nobody is, but to at least have an intention coming into the classroom with a sense of openness and welcome for all the kids and an open curiosity if somebody is very quiet or noisy or whatever, like what's going on, then that can begin to shape the whole classroom environment because everybody begins to feel, I can be safe with this person. Mm He will listen to me or he will listen to me. He cares what's happening for me. <clears throat> so even if I'm having a bad day and I'm crying or I'm acting up some, I know what's not going to come toward me isn't primarily going to be judgment, you bad kid. It's going to be, gosh, I wonder what you're needing right now. Mm-hmm. And so groups then will resonate with the stress of others in the group and will also resonate with the calmness and the openness and the receptivity of others in the group. And obviously the person in power has an outsized influence on that with all eyes on that person, him or her, whoever that is. So it's the same in a counseling room. It's the same in a city council meeting. You know, it's the same in the government. Um, Mm -hmm. Your neighbors in New Zealand illustrated what a leader with real beauty and courage is like in, in that terrible, terrible mosque shooting that happened. But what grace and what dignity and what beauty. And we're Mm -hmm. suffering in the United States because we don't have any of that right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was beautiful to watch her and you could feel, yeah. you could almost feel the country grieve together but also relax together like we're in mm-hmm. safe hands. This woman knows what she's doing. She's holding all of us. Mm-hmm. That was my sense hearing her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was wonderful. Wonderful yeah. example of leadership, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. it was. And of the effect again on on huge groups of people. Mm-hmm. So it isn't just it isn't just her and a few others. It's like everyone and all of us. I mean, even over here, we're all like, oh, maybe we'll hire her to come and be president. <laughs> 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 yeah, Funny, I was just reflecting on. It was just quite an incredible way you described the impact 
of the teacher's side on the classroom. And it was so descriptive. And one of the things I was reflecting on was for the, the experience of the children in that you would have a person who emanates this level of threat and stress, but they might still be saying things that any other teacher would. And what a confusing experience that would be for the child. Yes. And the messages of fear are much stronger than any words that are being said. Mm. So now you have confusion and fear. Mm. For sure, because you're absolutely right. They could say exactly the same words and it would have an entirely different resonance inside them. Yeah, yeah. And the same can be said about politicians too, I think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, Bonnie, could you talk to us about what what do you mean by functional subgrouping? Um, and, and if there were any other kind of ways in which you think about how you help a class or a group of people who are stressed and dysregulated? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about functional subgrouping, but it's not mine. That's Susan Gant and Yvonne Agazarian and something called system-centered group psychotherapy. And I've had the fortune, Susan and I edited a book together, and we've done some other writing together, and I really love the work that these women have done. So I'm not an expert, but it is something that having spent time with Susan, I find myself thinking about and, and using, you know, with, with groups of people at times. So basically functional subgrouping is somebody in the group is having, say, an experience and says, I'm feeling anxious right now. And to the group then, we say anyone else. And then anybody else who's also having anxiety would say, boy, me too, I'm really having that. And then somebody else in the group might say, well, I'm not, I'm feeling angry. And so now this person says, so anyone else in the room feeling angry? And pretty soon you begin to have groups of people that can have listen to each other and have compassion for each other because they're all experiencing the same kind of thing. And then over time, what happens is that the two groups become regulated enough so that even though they're having different experiences, they can begin to hear one another. Mm -hmm. So in any group, you might have, you know, five or six different subgroups. It wouldn't necessarily just be two. But, until, but everybody eventually gets involved in one group or another by enough similarities. And then once those similarities give us the strength, then it's easier to harmonize groups as a whole. So I think it's a beautiful, beautiful way to help people get co-regulated with each other by finding people who are having the same experience as they are so you don't feel alone and you also feel like here's somebody I can talk to who will understand me. Mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think it is very useful in all kinds of groups, whether it's faculty meetings or wherever it might be that people are gathered around that and you're wanting to get some sense of more calm in the room, that it's a really good route. Mm. That's an interesting idea. I guess in education, we talk about this idea of ability grouping, where we think about, you know, kids who have similar abilities. But I suppose what you're talking about is this idea of grouping based on their state, not just their social emotional skills, but their social emotional state. And it's not just about grouping them together, but somehow having them slowly turn towards the other people in the room to recognize what the others are feeling as well. Would that be right, Bonnie? Yes, I think that's really true. And I also what we know is that trauma embeds most when we feel like I am alone. So a child who's in a very frightened state, not speaking, not anything, and feels completely alone, is having a trauma in that moment and a trauma that is going to linger and leave them more afraid. But if they hear another child is also frightened or even see the recognition in the teacher's face, 
or the leader's face, whoever that is, of yes, I know about fear too, then that is much less, is much more likely to get integrated and not remain another trauma that this child is carrying. Mm-hmm. That recognition and reflection of each other that leaves us not feeling alone. I can't, I've worked with trauma survivors my entire career, almost exclusively. We all really are, but I mean big traumas as well as little ones and, you know, a, a lot of attachment trauma, that kind of thing, which I know we're calling developmental trauma, but, you know, really it's all very similar. We wind up with wounds that haven't been healed that now are affecting how we live and move in our lives. And having done that, I, I, what I hear always is when the person is talking about their trauma, they're talking about being alone with it. Mm. The feeling inside is I'm all by myself with this trauma. And the minute there's some recognition of I can be there with you, let's us be there with this trauma, things begin to open and loosen and heal. And mm-hmm. so just that, even if you can't change something, you know, for this child mm-hmm. in the like whatever it is, she's still got to do X, you know, but the recognition that she doesn't want to and that it scares her makes such a huge difference. Yeah. I think sometimes people find that really hard. You know, you think of children constantly being in groups through schools and classes, and they're always with someone that they can still feel incredibly alone, even when being surrounded by people. Um, Yeah. And just having too, from a teacher's point of view, we tend to do things like that, pedagogy like that, without actually thinking if it's actually the right thing for this child at this time. I mean, mm-hmm. we just do the blanket, it's group work. That's We're doing wrong. it this way. And maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe we need to stop ta- teaching the tech technical um, transitions associated with group work and, and think of how to be mindful in our group work. Well, yes, and also oh, the, you know, the child state, you know, yeah. because it, as, you, as, you, as we develop our own capacity for mindfulness, we begin to more easily read another child's, other children's faces. So if you're looking around the room and you notice that there's some, some people who really just aren't there anymore mm-hmm. and others that are fidgeting all over the place and clearly can't attend, it might be a moment to stop and do something else. Mm-hmm. Do something to bring some safety and calmness into the room so that everybody and not just these six kids can be actually learning something. Mm. If a child is checked out or is in an anxious state, they aren't going to be learning. Mm. Mm. Uh, what are some of the other practices that you think help develop that sense of safety, Bonnie, especially in groups, you know, from your experience of therapeutic groups and working with people with trauma? What would you suggest would be some of the other kind of useful practices to build safety? Well, I always, in all the work I'm doing these days, it's about us as the one who is either the therapist or the teacher or all kinds of people come to our trainings, but who's basically in the leader role, developing more and more, uh, treating themselves more and more the way everybody wants to be treated. In other words, having less judgments about our own selves and beginning to accept all the parts of ourselves with a kind of warm, receptive embrace because until we do that for ourselves it's going to be really hard to do that for other people because if I have a part of myself that thinks if I am say sleepy in a classroom I'm a bad person and I still think that about myself I'm going to probably not have much tolerance for the kid yawning in class 
Mm -hmm. If I learn to care about that part of myself and be curious and hold and care for and get others involved also with me holding that part of me, then when that child yawns, it goes off inside of me. Oh, I wonder. Mm -hmm. I know I was yawning because of this or talking or whatever it might be. You know, the child can't stop talking, whatever it might be. So it has to begin at home. It has to begin here. Uh, that we do these practices of broad acceptance, of curiosity, of, of having our judgments be less, and our curiosity more. Those two go together. Judgments go down, curiosity goes up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, I think it's essential. If I were designing a teacher training program, that would be an element of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's you know, fascinating. Operation to be in a classroom with kids in all different states. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing, but I, but I think what you're saying is it's not something that can't be taught and practiced. I think it absolutely can. But then, if that were happening in a school and in, in a in a, a teacher training program, you need the teacher doing the same thing for themselves so they can actually mirror it, because it isn't a technique; it's a practice, like a spiritual mm-hmm. practice of mm-hmm. It's not a technique. It's not like I say I accept all of myself and that's it. It's a done deal. Yeah. Like every day I notice when I don't accept myself and instead of this gesture, it's more like, oh, what if I held that part of myself? And it's a lifetime work. We never get all the way there. Yeah. It's a Funny, it sure is. Yeah. Funny, we wanted to ask you about this um, concept you write about around neural integration, um, just to kind of think about what that means. And I can't help but ask for maybe even like an example or an anecdote from your practice that would mm-hmm. kind of illustrate how we can kind of provide that for people. Yeah, again, when, when if we are in the presence of someone who has, this is Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain, which you I'm imagining everyone in the world is now familiar with. (laughs) When we are with people whose brains are more integrated, this being the more emotional centers and this being the the regulation piece, this that's right under here, this orbital frontal cortex and middle prefrontal region can regulate the amygdala. Well, these connections don't get made unless we're in the presence of someone who's already gone. And so probably when we talk about neural integration, we're talking about a bunch of, I mean, it's a huge, vast subject, but we're certainly talking about being with people who can facilitate that in us because they already have a good deal of it themselves. Mm -hmm. So if I have a person come in who has, when we talk about embedded traumas, we're talking about traumas that couldn't integrate throughout the whole brain, but are, have to be held subcortically and in the body. So I have someone come in, let's say, and we'll say, on a good day, my brain's, you know, being fairly integrated and I'm feeling calm and receptive. And this person comes in and their brain is like this, you know, they're, they're feeling ag- agitated, they're feeling frightened, they're feeling like they're scared to go toward the memories. And if I can kind of open myself enough to hold that so they feel safe, they drop down into the memory. One of the things that begins to happen is they'll feel me go there with them. And because my brain is like this, their brain will be a little more like this. So it goes back to what we were saying about teachers who come into the room in a more calm, open, receptive state. Their brains are already helping their students' brains get a little more integrated. Mm-hmm. Every time we're reflected and seen as what, we were, as what we're feeling is meaningful, 
we get a little more integrated. It's that interpersonal recognition of one another with kindness and compassion and understanding that begins to integrate brains, as well as dealing with the traumas inside, but that's not the role of a teacher so much. Mm-hmm. That teacher can provide a safe attaching environment for a mm-hmm. child, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If it's not, especially important if it's not happening at home. Yeah, and I think some of the safest relationships for a lot of these children are at school um, in terms of people who they see quite regularly and have quite a big influence on their lives. So I think it's incredibly important, Bonnie. Yeah. I was wondering if you could speak to this, um, give an example for us of this idea you talk about, about transformational learning, what it is and perhaps what it looks like. Well, I, I think again the, the when we when we talk about I mean I'm in I teach therapists regularly at this point, and what we are seeking to have is embodied learning. When we learn an idea, it just kind of sits in the left hemisphere, and that's okay. I mean, we need knowledge. It's important to have some knowledge, but it isn't until we actually embody it that it begins to transform how we live most of the time. You know, most of the people on this planet would agree that that global warming is a problem, not global warming, climate change is a problem, a big problem, like maybe a death-dealing problem. We don't do very much as long as it remains an idea. So what I would call transformational or embodied learning has to do with taking that in in a way that it becomes part of literally changing our perception of the world so that we might begin to feel the pain of the planet. We might begin to have a visceral felt sense that there's an emergency and then we will actually act. Mm-hmm. And so um, any learning that just sits in the left hemisphere is probably not going to be nearly as able to influence our behavior and our relationships as the things that become part of us. And so I know even I, I used to teach English, which is a thankless job for because nobody wants to take the class. So <laughs> <laughs> I did that for a number of years. And, and what I found was that when the kids first of all, picked a subject, they had to write a long research paper because I was trying to help them actually become college students out of high school. And that they had to pick a subject. I asked them to write down five things they loved and then select the one they loved the most. And then we worked our way through in a way that, that hopefully it was meaningful all along the way and why it was important to have a paragraph structure that somebody could understand. Because I'd say, well, what do you want people to do with this? And they'd say, well, I want them to change in this way. And i say, read this paragraph. <laughs> Is that going to help? <laughs> and, and then we'd figure out ways. But it, because it was tied to meaning and something for them, they put up with me and they actually learned how to write. Hmm. It had to be something that had a visceral rest, you know, referent or it wasn't going to go anywhere. I mean, they might learn how to put together a wooden paper, but that's not any good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make you want to write or want to research or want to be excited. So I think it's really, really important that we, that we, uh, that we give our students and also our own selves the opportunities to learn things in ways that become part of how we see the world and part of how we live in the world. Hmm. It's a really interesting idea. And I was thinking back to what you were saying before about this idea of spirituality and how we see the world. And a lot of the feedback sometimes we get from trainings, and I'm sure you've heard it too, Bonnie, is about how people feel really rocked by it and it's really changed the way they see things in the world. Um, And it often ties into 
you know, I guess some of those fundamental beliefs that teachers have themselves. Um, I was thinking about this idea that sometimes it feels like it's a mountain to climb with some people in terms of asking them to do things differently. But mm-hmm. it, I suppose it's about really challenging some of very fundamental spiritual kind of ways in which they look at the world. I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Well, I think it's really true. I mean, in our, in all, we do year-long trainings now, and I love doing that. People come from all over the United States and sometimes outside the United States to do them with us. And so they mostly don't know each other when they come in. And one of the things that we try to do then is offer my, my partner and I, who I teach with, offer a sense of what true presence feels like, non-judgmental, agendaless presence of being received. And that's what we hope for. And that really is a spiritual state. Hmm. If we can come toward each other in a non-judgmental state without agendas, that doesn't mean teachers shouldn't teach. That's not what I mean. Not No agenda of I'm going to get you to be a certain way. Hmm. Not you don't have to learn this stuff, but to get you to be a certain way. But who are you? And all of that. That kind of receptivity to me is a lot of what mindfulness practice and even other lots of other forms of spiritual life are centered in is this practice mm-hmm. of the present. So yeah. I think that's what's foundational in our human relationships. If we're if I, these days, you know, I'm getting older. I'm not doing as much therapy. I'm doing more consultation and all of that. And I'm thinking, what I really want to be is a therapeutic presence in the world with the bank teller, with mm-hmm. the kid in the newspaper, I want to be able to be present in that way that they feel their value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's nice. I mean, you know, from a very practical point of view, Bonnie, what would be one or two things that teachers can do to just stay calm? <laughs> there might be, even in situations that are a bit hairy, what would be your suggestions about being calm and attentive? Well, I think everybody has to find out where their resources are. I mean, for me, over the years, there's two resources that are primary for me, but this doesn't mean it would be the same for anybody else. I think we have to experiment around and find out what works. But if I can feel like I'm grounding my feet into the earth and kind of feeling between me and the earth, there's a, my whole nervous system comes down. I practiced it a lot. So it's familiar and I find my breath is deepening and my body is relaxing and I feel that. So that's really good. The other thing for me is calling to mind the three or four people in my life that I'm closest to and I know always as best I can and most of the time very accurately reflect me, love me, care about me. And just calling them to mind calms my body. But it's different for different people. I worked with a woman with tremendous panic, and I do sand tray therapy with people. <laughs> and she got, fell in love with the sand that's coated with beeswax that you can form up. And that became her primary regulator. So that she carried, she had trouble flying, so she'd have a bag of it in her bag, and she would work it while she was on the plane. She'd work it in board meetings surreptitiously underneath in her lap. She'd work it when she was just ready to just be so angry with her kids. And it turned out to be the best regulator. Some people can think of the vastness of the sky. Some people may have a particular scent that calms them, that they just wear where they can smell it. So I think the encouragement is like, what does calm you down? And then how can you weave that into something that's always an available resource for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all different. 
Yeah. Uh, and we spend a lot of time thinking about what's going to help the children. And I think even if we spent half the time thinking about what might help us, that might go a really long way, I think. Because that's what will help the children. That's a, It's yeah. the same question. <laughs> yeah. And again, too, I think thinking back what Bonnie was saying about how, you know, it has to come from the top. For teachers, you <laughs> have to, it's a bit like children feeling safe. You have to really and truly believe that it's okay for you not to feel in control. Therefore, yeah. to be proactive, to plan for your own mindfulness and keeping yourself regulated, but that to really genuinely know that you're in a safe space that you can admit that it doesn't always come easily and you have to work on it. Well, yeah, and I think the other piece is to have open spaces to talk about, I had a horrible day in class, I was dysregulated the entire day, and have yes. somebody listen to you. Schools need layers of support, every place needs layers of support, so that when I've had just the worst day, I'm getting sick, I'm tired, and I have four kids that are just out of their mind for who knows what reason, and by the end of the day, we're all just ready to never return again, I have to have somebody I can tell that to, yeah. who will not judge me who will not only listen to me, but probably say, that was me two weeks ago or whatever, you know, and really hear and let my distress integrate so that I can get back on my feet again. Because mm -hmm. some days are going to be awful. I mean, as a therapist, I've had sometimes my person will leave and I think, my gosh, did I do them any good at all? You know, because I was off or we felt out of sync with each other or whatever it was. And I think we have to have the humility to know that we're just human beings and there's going to be good days and tough days and who cares enough about us to listen to us on those days and help us get back to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Every school needs that to, as, as instead of having to feel like you've got to be the perfect teacher. All mm. the time now. Mm. Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. This mm, has been really fascinating. Before we finish, I wanted to ask you about what you're currently curious about in your work. <laughs> I think the thing that's just with me all the time is how can I, how, what are the best ways that, that we are able to help people sense what true presence is and create environments in which this can grow in them. And I think we're getting better at it because now we have people coming back for a second and third time to the year long training because they really want to develop it. Even though the material is the same, but but being together begins to nurture this. So I think I'm pretty much a one-track person at this point <laughs> around, around presence and safety and that kind of deep care for one another and the planet and, you know, everything else. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm always curious about what, we, what more we might do, you know. So, That's wonderful. Yeah, Thank you. Bonnie, were there any resources you'd like to direct our listeners to or how they could get in touch with you at all? Yes, and I also wanted to say that I will be in Australia for, for in five different places and from the end of September to the end of October through the Australian Childhood Foundation, which is childhood.org.au. Uh, and so everything's on their website. Um, you might, the book, the current book is called Heart of Trauma, and that's what I'll be talking about when I'm there. So that might be a good resource. And our, uh, our website is Nurturing the Heart. Dot org, and so there's there's information and resources on there. There's stuff about Sand Trade. My calendar is on there. Um, 
a meditation that we do at the beginning of every gathering is also on there if people wanted to hear that. So there's a lot of different kinds of resources. And there's also one page that has nothing but some beautiful poetry and some gorgeous pictures where people can just go and rest. Oh, lovely. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> we'll put all those links and dates on our show notes for people to access. Bonnie, thank you so much for your time today. Um, I was reflecting on your um, background in comparative literature and you're a wonderful storyteller. So thank yes. you for, your, uh, thank <laughs> thank you for you. taking the time to thank speak you. to us. Thank you both very much for having me. It's been a very big pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> that was our interview with Bonnie Badnock. To get access to the links and resources mentioned in the interview, please visit www.tipbs.com. If you are enjoying listening to our show, please rate and review us on iTunes. Your ratings make all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.